Hey folks, thanks for tuning back in for another episode of Concessions. This one is a very special week, if only for the fact that this is the very first episode that Dan and I ever sat down to record together back in early February 2023. For that reason, you may have to forgive us some slightly lower quality audio, some more ums and uhs than usual, and also a pesky squeaky chair. But all the same, the bones of the show are there. Also of note, the director of this week's film, the one and only M. Night Shyamalan, is the first but certainly won't be the last filmmaker to have two movies featured on the podcast. You can look forward to our discussion on signs next week. What a twist. If you've been enjoying concessions, please consider giving us a like, a follow and or a rating on the app that you're listening to us on. You can also join us online on X where Dan goes by Dan concedes and on threads where I go by Jared concessions. If you haven't been enjoying concessions, it's probably not the end of the world, but then again, it might be. Let's find out now, as Dan and I give our takes from earlier in the year, fresh off of seeing M. Night Shyamalan's home invasion thriller, Knock at the Cabin. then you pivot like i don't know like if we were at the end of the talking about my dad's juicy mouth and we're like sitting there laughing about it, it's like all right welcome to concessions well <laughs> enough about us planning for concessions and welcome to concessions i'm jared and i'm dan and today we are talking about ritual human sacrifice yes we are most specifically ritual human sacrifice as directed by m night Shyamalan in 2023's knock at the cabin based on the novel The Cabin at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay. We can uh, we can debate on which title is the best title uh, later on today. Screenplay was also written by M. Night Shyamalan, along with Steve Desmond and Michael Sherman. Stars Dave Bautista in the lead, uh, along with Jonathan Groff, Rupert Grint, Nikki Amuka-Bird, Ben Aldridge, Abby Quinn, and uh, making her debut, nine-year-old Kristen Cuey as Wen. The, the young daughter of the family. So to start to start things off, knock the cabin. Good, bad, indifferent. Give me your honest assessment. The short answer, good. Uh, the long answer, as good as it could be. But I think that there could have been, or there are things that could have made it better. So overall, um, especially for like a February re- or January release, yeah, January. Uh, let's 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 find out. We should know these things. Overall, for a beginning of the year release, when things are a little bit thinner, a really good showing, especially for uh, given M. Night Shyamalan's uh, baggage with his recent output. Or or even output the last 15 years almost. (laughs) Uh, There's definitely uh, hits and misses. Maybe we can talk about kind of if there are more hits or more misses in his oeuvre in general. But uh, yep, the movie was released on February 3rd, so it just escaped the kind of January dump month. Although, I, I got to say, in recent years, there have been some amazing January movies. Get Out came in January. Came out in January. Uh, this year, uh, pro- maybe not at the same level as Get Out, but we had Megan just oh, absolutely ca- capture the, the public uh, conscious. 
at, you know, um, Thregan. <laughs> um, was, yeah, I'm trying to think of last year's. There's always like some cheap horror movie that they they push out for. Uh, some are great, some are not so great, but they're always kind of fun. I'm trying to remember what last year's uh, output was. But anyways, with oh, so yeah, you asked about Shyamalan, and I kind of have an interesting trajectory with the guy because growing up, I was uh, too spooked for scary movies. So when he was in his heyday, like you know. Uh, Six Sense and uh, um, Signs and uh, The Village and all that stuff. Too scary for me. Avoided it. Nope. But um, by the time <laughs> I was like, starting to pay attention, it was kind of when he was in, uh, when people were kind of getting over him, like The Happening. I remember seeing that like at a, at a sleepover because it was already considered like really goofy. And from then on out, it was kind of like, oh, it's the twist man where you watch the movie and he pulls the rug out from under you. And it's the, the last thing you'd ever expect, although it's completely hackneyed. And it's like it's kind of fun to watch his goofy, convoluted plots. And the first movie I saw in theaters of his was Glass or Split, actually. And Split, I actually really liked. Yeah. Uh, and I actually had no idea it had anything to do with Unbreakable. I just went in thinking it was a standalone kind of film. Didn't even know Unbreakable existed, actually. Well, that was the twist at the end, is that you realized um, that yeah. uh, M. Night Shyamalan used to make good movies. <laughs> but then uh, goes back to show with Glass and just makes a mediocre one again. Yeah, or, 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 or bad. I mean, Glass might have been outright bad. Uh, I agree. Split was... Very good. I would think it was obviously anchored by a performance that is pr pretty much universally beloved. M. Night Shyamalan has a history of pulling out really amazing performances from his casts, um, even in some of his less well-received movies. And Knock at the Cabin is certainly no exception there. We'll talk about Dave Bautista and the rest of the cast a little later. But uh, I have to be really forthright with some context here. I'm a big M. Night Shyamalan fan. I, I didn't get to see The Sixth Sense or Unbreakable in the theater. Not that I was necessarily too young, but they didn't really interest me. But I saw the movie Signs, which came out when I was in the 10th grade. And I wrote about this in our conversation about Skinamarink from this year. But Signs is one of the few movies that is truly put like a real terror in me uh, and not even just the really, really effective jump scares and suspense scenes in the movie, but it, it rattled me to the extent that I was, I was scared for like days after and it, very few movies have done that to me. Signs is, is the one that keeps popping out at me is the movie that has probably scared me the most in my life. And uh, if you know me, that is the closest or fastest way into my heart. So, uh, <laughs> So M. Night Shyamalan, he, he got a lot of goodwill, like permanent goodwill from me for making signs. Since then, uh, The Village, I didn't like as much. The Lady in the Water, I didn't like as much. The Happening is bad, but I kind of <laughs> like watching it's it. Kind of it's kind of so bad it's good at this point. In a way, yeah. Uh, Mark Wahlberg is, is on the opposite side where he, Shyamalan did not pull out a great performance from Mark Wahlberg in that movie. <laughs> But then after that, you know, I, I I didn't bother seeing his last airbender or his after earth. I just heard that they were just putrid and didn't want to put myself through that. And then so when The Village came out or excuse me, when um, The Visit came out in 2015, the general consensus around that one is that it was somewhat of a return to form. It was back to his stripped down, big concept, big twist type of like very taut 
but still like adventurous thrillers. And um, I quite liked that movie. And then when Split came out a couple of years after that, I was pretty blown away. I was like, all right, he's back. He's back to like his old tricks. He's making these movies with small budgets, he can, which means he can do whatever the hell he wants. And he's making some, you know, high concept, sort of scary, sort of fun, just uh, mind bendy Twilight Zoney movies. Glass, not so much, but I I did quite like old. See, like, I, I thought it had some because yeah. I heard like I basically heard like uh, he's kind of fluttering back into his like not so good era. Yeah, I, I feel like the 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 feedback on that movie is quite mixed. Like I think if you would you were to look at IMDb or, or Rotten Tomatoes, like audience scores probably be around a five on IMDb, around a fifty on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, probably like similar on, on Metacritic, probably somewhere in like the right in the middle categories. I definitely fell into the category where I liked that movie quite a bit. Uh, it's silly. It's got some surprisingly, um, impactful body horror for a, a PG 13 movie The the twist worked for me. The all important M night Shyamalan twist in that one worked for me. I thought it was kind of a fun idea and it, it made sense to me, but, but knock at the cabin, I think is his best movie since all the way back to signs. Like he hasn't made anything between 2003 and now that gave me the same faith in him as signs did. And now knock at the cabin did. You know, you, yeah, you're following his career. I'm more basing a lot of his careers where it's like, or his career so far on kind of cultural discussion around him. Because, and, and as you're kind of building, he's one of the few directors left where it's like this, an M. Night Shyamalan movie. Like, there's not too many directors left that the movie, it, a lot of the marketing goes around uh, the guy who made it. Like, I don't know, Tarantino's another one. Wes Anderson's another one. Maybe the most successful would be James Cameron. <laughs> yeah, for real. But to the level of, especially with M. Night Shyamalan, which now we can get into uh, you know, the movie proper, where knowing it's M. Night Shyamalan movie does alter my expectations of what's going to happen in the plot, which for Knock of the Cabin is a huge plus because the whole time I was waiting, ooh, are we doing spoilers? Yeah, from here on out, you're going to have spoilers <laughs> for Knock of the Cabin. Yeah, I mean, if you haven't seen movie... the movie, go see it because yeah. uh, it's more interesting than than us talking about it. But you know, if you've seen it, stick around. Or if you don't care and you'd rather live vicariously through some strangers, spoilers from here on out. Or <laughs> yeah, not at the cabin. The conceit, yeah, the conceit's pretty clear from the the trailer. But um, in even from the trailer, like I I watch it, it's a very interesting idea, and then I think, okay, what's the catch? What's the big what's going to be the big rug pull at the end because this is an M. Night Shyamalan movie. And because of that, because it's always kind of sitting up there, uh, the general plot or the the mistrust of the plot or the information being given to you uh, is heightened because it's an M. Night Shyamalan movie. Um, if it was someone else making it, I probably wouldn't have been able to sit and draw conclusions a little more easily or like pick a side more clearly. Um, which actually, Jared, would you like to give a quick synopsis of the plot? Yeah, uh, sure. So we have a uh, a family trip. Two dads and their their young daughter are kind of taking a, a trip out to the ever present in the cinema proverbial cabin in the woods. Uh, the movie spends about thirty seconds of just you know the idyllic state of the young daughter uh, catching grasshoppers outside 
in a, a very uh, clear metaphor for the plot of the movie. She's capturing grasshoppers and being very gentle with them. And then uh, off comes this hulking, tattooed, professional wrestler looking guy to just invade the, her space and chat her up. But he's oddly polite, but he makes it very clear that he's there to enter the cabin. His friends show up or who we think might be his friends. They're brandishing these just awful, scary, improvised weapons. And they sit the, the family down and they tell them that the end of the world is going to happen unless the family chooses to willingly sacrifice one of their own. So the invaders are not allowed to kill the family member themselves. They're not allowed to... Um, kind of make that decision for them. The family has to just on faith, believe them and decide to kill one of, one of themselves. And of course uh, they think that's wacky and that these folks are obviously a, a homophobic doomsday cult and uh, they're, they're not about to, to believe them. And then over the course of the movie, some information is slowly revealed that makes us and them think, wow, maybe these, uh, these antagonists aren't so delusional. That's sort of what the, uh, the tension of the film hinges on is, is this real? Is, is the end of the world really going to happen if they don't do this? Or is it just, you know, hysteria with these four people or are they there with more traditional ulterior bad motives uh, or what? But for me, uh, I think I, I have to disagree pretty directly on how the, the baggage that M. Night Shyamalan kind of brings like impacted my enjoyment of the movie. Because for me, the tension of the film really boils down to like, is this a realistic, straightforward home invasion thriller, albeit with some very polite invaders? Or is this a big concept, horrific kind of, Twilight Zone-esque M. Night Shyamalan movie. And if you buy into the idea that M. Night Shyamalan is going to do M. Night Shyamalan, the ma the magical side of it, you know, the unrealistic side of it is probably going to win. Hmm. And uh, I went into the movie actually having read the novel and having read the novel actually doesn't um, have an impact on, on the tension of whether it's real or not, because uh, spoiler alert for the novel, you don't find out in the novel. Hmm. But being that this was an M. Night Shyamalan movie and the way that they market it showed planes falling out of the sky, a tsunami hitting the Pacific Northwest, the surrounding uh, woods of the cabin on fire, uh, they really go into those surreal, dreamy, end-of-the-world images. Yeah, I mean, I, I knew what was really happening and it really the tension stopped being like is that the case and the tension is like is this family going to get there with me <laughs> oh not? interesting yeah and, i mean because that that is and in thinking about the ensemble cast like there really is only one character in the entire cabin that is a pure skeptic and it's the uh the the guy from philadelphia which I, I apologize to people from the future when we do become a massive uh worldwide podcast but people from philadelphia are rude and so it makes sense that the Philadelphia guy is just going to be an ass the whole time and just <laughs> kind of kind of browbeat everyone to the point of the, the ensemble cast is actually excellent, kind of with the exception of him. He kind of sticks out as sort of one note where everyone else is like really dynamic. And he just kind of 
he doesn't change at all until the very end, which I'll, I'll try to avoid what the very end is unless it really becomes pertinent. But what, what you're saying about the, you know, the dreamlike imagery and the big, you know, biblical apocalyptic imagery in the, the preview, see, that that almost prompted me because it said it's an M. Night Shyamalan movie. I'm like, okay, okay, they're gonna they're trying to make me think this. They, they yeah. want me to think this. And then he's going to do the big rug pull and I'm going to be like, oh, the twist, it got me. So I was like looking for pieces of the twist the whole time. Right. Um, which uh, I won't, yeah, I won't spoil it that directly. Um, we can yeah. There. So uh, you're, you're talking about uh, Ben Ben Aldridge playing the role of Andrew, who is uh, the the dad in the movie, who is the skeptic. Uh, he is the uh, immovable object of the movie, where at some point all of the other characters are trying to get him to move. Uh, his husband is played by Jonathan Groff from Hamilton and from Frozen, who I really love. And I, uh, mm -hmm. I, I'm really happy seeing him get to play a serious role in a drama where he still gets to bring a little bit of that sort of like musical theater boy that you can bring home to mama type yeah. of really sweet. Um, energy, just sweet energy. Um, he played a really serious role in uh, Mindhunter on Netflix, which I really enjoyed as well, but he is not... He doesn't have his usual energy in that. He's very, very uh, uh, sort of down. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll agree that that, the, that character of Andrew, and I, I wouldn't even say it's Ben Aldridge's performance. No, the character no. of, of Andrew is unshakably skeptical to the point where the actor playing him doesn't get a lot of tools in his in his in his in his toolbox to actually kind of stretch his his range as an actor oh, he gets he gets to be very direct say say what's on his mind in, in a very matter of fact i'm right and you're wrong and everybody knows it manner and for like 45 minutes into the movie it becomes quite grating when all of the other characters have all of this conflict uh particularly Jonathan Groff's character, Eric. Mm -hmm. Ben Aldridge's character, Andrew, he's he's the skeptic. He's the the pragmatist. He uh I forget what he does for a living. Is he a he's lawyer? A, he's a civil rights lawyer. He's a civil rights lawyer, so he's concerned with the facts. Lawyer, by the way. He's a human rights lawyer, he's concerned with the facts. Uh we don't learn much about Eric other than he is probably a man of faith, or he at least was raised Christian, and he so is thus a little bit more susceptible to maybe believing this this group of attackers who are, who are saying that the rapture is at hand, or, or at least the apocalypse is at hand, you know, that them being at, at odds, not at first, but slowly more and more and more at odds is the tension of the movie, right? You've, yeah, got, this, nice this, plot. you've got the Scully and Mulder skeptic versus believer that happens. It's tried and true formula. And I, you know, I would say that the movie actually executes it remarkably well. And and ends on a note that feels satisfying as a as a resolution to it. And I will say that that is a note about I've, I've been, you know just reading reviews and stuff like that. That almost that was a complaint that you would see a lot where it's like this is predictable. This is running over uh, you know going through uh, well trodden paths. And I'm like, I mean, yeah, but it's done really really well. Like just because it, it's you know it's taking paths and it's it's using tropes. Like all these characters are kind of uh archetypes almost um but it like their archetypes are a reason they work it's a very archetypal story it's a very ancient story of you know human sacrifice and the apocalypse and and our place in the greater cosmos so it's like why wouldn't we be dealing in archetypes here when it comes to characters and, and they do with uh 
the the human rights lawyer. I'm going to be awful with names through the entirety of this whole project. They do do good work of justifying the way he is um, because they they put the only time you ever really leave the cabin in this entire film is to look at the ba- uh, the background of the gay couple and their their romance and the struggles that they had to go through and the bigotry that they faced. And so you you do understand why he's hardened against uh, any threats to him and his family, especially threats from a bunch of like Jehovah's Witness looking people coming in, telling him about the end of the world and that, you know, an angry God needs the sacrifice of two queer characters. Yeah. Yeah. It does. It doesn't get more uh, like uh, the, the chips don't get more stacked kind of against the believability of these folks because of the experiences that this couple has had for just existing. Right. Like the, there's another character in the movie. Um, I don't, you know, I don't think it, it it deserves kind of spoiling it, but there's another character in the movie that does hate them for just existing. That character ends up playing like a very major role, even with very limited screen time, uh, to kind of drive home that that tension of of why this character would never believe these people. That also assists in keeping the audience guessing and giving a pretty firm rationale to someone, but until the very end, um, that's like, this could go either way. What keeps this from being a straight home invasion thriller, which is certainly dabbles in those tropes, but it's that the home invaders don't want to do it. Like they hate what they're doing right now. They, well, you see them, they like, uh, you know, the the first time they invade the home, obviously the couple's not just going to let four people with medieval torches and strange weapons come in. So they break in. Um, but then they heal their wounds and they, they help them and they feed them and they, like they, they take care of them because these are people who the last thing that they want to do is come here and, and they're acting on faith, but it's still faith that they're not sure about, uh, especially when uh, acts get more extreme as the movie ratchets up, which I think that one dynamic is what keeps that tension going the whole time is no one wants to be a part of this. Yeah. And, uh, and and that's the thing that, I mean, for me as an audience member, how do you justify taking them on faith just a little bit if their their actions are really, really speaking to that and, that idea that they don't want to be there? And that was something that was running through my head the whole time when I'm watching, especially Dave Patisse's character, which like, if, if his performance didn't land, then this whole thing kind of, it's way weaker for it. Um, so he, I wouldn't say he carries it because the ensemble cast is excellent, but he is the centerpiece of it. Whereas this idea of, you know, I grew up uh, not like, not intensely evangelical, but pretty even uh, a standard conservative evangelical church. And this was a line that uh, I remember our pastor would say to us from time to time. Um, and it's like, if you really believed that your friend was going to eternal damnation and hell for their acts, wouldn't you do everything you could to stop them, even if you were uncomfortable with it? And I kept thinking about that when these four characters are doing like heinous things. But if they really, in their heart of hearts, thought that, like, well, it's either, you know, borderline torture these three people or seven billion people die, like, that arithmetic's easy. It is, yeah. And um, it's amazing. Uh, at, at, the be- very, at the very beginning of the movie, one of the first things that Andrew, our skeptic character, says to these people is, mm. even if I believed you and even if I knew that the end of the world would happen, I still wouldn't sacrifice my daughter. I was my wondering if the movie was going to be about that. I was wondering if within by the end of the first act that they were convinced that the apocalypse was happening and it was going to be about 
well, is it even worth defending humanity if it means that we have to do this? Which is a very interesting question to ask. Now they went with a different question, which is also interesting, but I thought that they were, you know, it turned out he was just, you know, pissy and wanted to yell mean things at them, which like fair, I would too. Um, but when he posed that question, I'm like, huh, yeah, does, does humanity and deserve to live under an angry God that requires us to kill our own every once so often? I did, <laughs> I read a, a review too that, pointed out like if this you know in the world of this movie if the apocalypse is real that means uh if you go back into like old testament stories like noah's a dick noah chose not to he just let the world flood (laughs) yeah sometimes they do that (laughs) okay so uh, before moving on, I want to want to put a pin in one in one question. Mm-hmm. Would the story have been better served by a lower key director, like someone who would imbue this with just kind of naturalism and matter of factness, and kind of shot it like a, a more straightforward home invasion story, where there isn't baggage that that might betray the the concept and and the uh, the reality of the situation. So. I guess I could interpret that one to two ways. Are you suggesting, let's say, shot for shot, same exact movie, but it was done by someone else? Or you Um, give someone else's script? So M. Night Shyamalan made, you know, his own punch up to the script. Mm -hmm. So maybe the script, yeah, the same script before he did that. Okay, okay. The only problem with, like, the M. Night Shyamalan-ness of this that um, I think hampered the story is, like, he tends to have a bit of a dialogue problem. He tends to have characters. It's sort of similar, very similar to like a, an episode of the Twilight Zone, where it's like characters are kind of just mouthpieces for ideas, and they're like, "Well, I'm this character, so I say this to get this point across to you." And they like they don't sound like humans all that much, which like you know sometimes you don't need that, but it could have been when the story hinges so much on the the relationship between especially the gay couple and i would say the gay couple to dave batista too i think you need more naturalistic dialogue than uh, other than like three representatives of people sharing their ideas at one another yeah i would agree like if if these characters felt more real in that regard uh and and just the movie was shot with um a, a little less like overt style certain certain moments would have more of an impact Right, like learn, like some of the revelations would have more of an impact. Um, having said that, I think that the directing in this movie is phenomenal. It's, I mean, just uh, like the 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 marriage of all the aspects, like the performances with the with the cinematography and the editing and the score, the weight that certain blocking is given in the context of certain shots. Like I, I keep thinking about the part where when is escaping or trying to escape and you've got this really amazing follow where the camera is very much like attached to just her directly in the middle of the frame. She'll mm-hmm. duck behind a tree. She'll kind of look back and we see just a out of focus Dave Batista kind of crossing um, kind of perpendicular to the camera. And then it happens again. We follow her to like another tree. We see him again, maybe getting a little closer. And it was, there's so many moments like that where, where the blocking and the, the the scenario itself and the way that the shots are composed and the way that the, the music will have these like belchy, low, like uh, brass stabs where that are just like 
really, really frightening um, where the, some of the suspense in this movie is really palpable. Like I, I felt, found myself really uncomfortable during a lot of it. And it, it wasn't necessarily because of the, the narrative and like, you know, me being afraid of what was on, around the next corner in terms of plot, but the actual just mechanics of the suspense really like had me on edge from the opening credits. Yeah, because after, I guess we're deep enough into the episode, I'm going to start spoiling particular plot points. Um, sure. Sorry, everyone. Because um, they, they set up a system where they ask you to make a choice, they say yes or no, one of them dies. They make that very clear, and it happens very matter-of-factly every single time, and you know exactly how it's going to go. Every well, and one of them dies, and then a whole bunch of people around the globe also yeah, die by yeah, some and then, kind of disaster. Then, uh, yeah. <laughs> A, a Moses-esque plague uh, ascends upon humanity. And like, so it sets up this formula. It's like, this is going to happen every time. And so it repeats four times um, and every single time. You know, you know exactly how it's going to go and it's still horrifying every time. Yeah, and I think a lot of it is um, he doesn't let us get desensitized to it. Mm -hmm. Like the yeah. movie is rated R for some reason. I mean, they, I... I, guess, I guess they say the F word a lot. Yeah, um, I mean, David's uh, death was pretty. I mean, you got a slit you, throat you, on camera. You don't see the slit throat. You see the blood come down. But yeah, whenever there's like one of these moments where a character dies, they don't show it. Like the camera will follow the weapon all the way to the point of impact and then stop, and then the weapon keeps going. Um, and uh, or you know, we don't see it at all because it's happening uh, inside of the. Uh, inside of the the house and and the camera has chosen to be outside of the house or the mm -hmm. cabin um every time like one of those kind of shocking violent things happens we don't really see it so no. like we don't really ever get desensitized to it so it, it just continues to be oppressive i will say i don't know how the plot would have done it but if we're if we're talking tension there was no point where i thought the daughter's life was in danger and maybe it would be a little uh, exploitative uh, or just like too easy, but like, you know, put a kid in danger, shit's tense. But you you didn't feel like her life was on the line? She was never going to get sacrificed. At no point did I feel that way. It was definitely going to be one of the dads. Um, yeah. Especially because, and you know, that that's baked into the plot. I don't know how, you would almost have to make some incredible plot contrivances to make it that way, but like, they make it very abundantly clear over and over. It's like, we don't know who's going to be in the cabin. We cannot decide for you. We cannot motivate you at all. You guys have to make this decision yourself. It's like, of course they're not going to kill their kid. Yeah. Yeah. That's so that's true. Spoilers for the novel, the cabin at the end of the world, him in, in inbound, but when dies. In the, oh, in the novel. She, wait, dies? Oh, or yeah. Sentence? No, she dies accidentally. Oh, yeah. See, I never felt like her life was in danger. Maybe a book reader going into this movie, like, would see the scenes oh. where she's in danger and they're like, oh, oh here it comes. God. Oh, yeah. I was, I was <laughs> puck puckering. Um, uh, yeah. I knew the movie was rated R. Uh, I, I mean, I quote unquote knew going in that at some point, uh, when was going to get huh. shot in the head. Um, uh, the book plays that that scene from her perspective um, and it, you don't see it coming in the book. It's <sighs> totally shocking. It completely, um, you know, it completely 
adjust the tone of the rest of the novel because it happens with like a hundred pages left or more. And um, once she's dead, it it uh, it almost makes it see like feel like it might be a little easier for one of the dads to s get sacrificed. Yeah, it's like, um, what do I got left now? Just off me. Yeah. So uh, when the movie didn't do that, I actually, you know, I, I really liked that. I, you know, obviously, I didn't like the child dying in the book. Um, <laughs> But it we are, actually we are an anti it, it, this, dead child this, podcast. We are an anti dead child podcast. Uh, anti dead dog as well, and um, uh, the the stakes remain the same. They just keep kind of, or they or they have like a a steadier, you know, ascension in the movie because it doesn't just completely recalibrate the whole thing in the second act with you know the kid dying. So I actually really liked that change. But I was very on edge, waiting for it to happen when the gun came out. Um, yeah, I could see. Yeah, definitely. If you came in knowing that that's a big plot point, but like I didn't know that, so the movie never. Which actually, that would have been a very a fun like play. Like sometimes directors, when they adapt things, they know the source material and they kind of play a little bit with people who have read the book. That would have been a fun one to like put her in real danger. I never, like, even when she got out and Dave Patisse was chasing her, like, he's just going to grab her and put her back. Like, I never right. really, I never really thought they were going to do anything bad. And, and yeah. it sounds like, uh, when you're describing the book, like, it sounds like the death was an accident. Like, yeah, uh, they're struggling for the gun. Uh, you know, the, the dad, uh, Andrew goes into the, the car, just like he does in the movie. The, the lady who is the nurse, uh, Sabrina, she breaks his leg with her weapon. She's like, you know, it's kind of, hitting him while he's trying to go for the gun. He takes a shot at her, gets back in, you know, holds uh, Leonard at gunpoint. I think at some point Leonard and him struggle for the gun. It goes off. It kills one. Yeah. Yeah. RIP book when it's a good thing that movie her lived. Cause that, that's, yeah. that's, that's, you know, um, yeah, we're in full spoiler territory. Like that's the discussion at the end when they sacrifice uh, the, the nicer boy, um, Eric, Eric, when they sacrifice, Eric, um, that's the story he tells to pretty much convince him of like, I'm fine, I'm at peace, go see your daughter grow up and like live a fulfilling mm -hmm. life. Yeah, which also I'm like thinking, like, this girl's traumatized. I don't see her uh being mentally well in her late twenties. Although who what who else would? We just lived through the most of the apocalypse. Yeah, they, they lived through three fourths of the apocalypse. <laughs> Uh, okay, but that actually, let's, uh, I hate to do this because I did like this movie, but let's talk about uh, the ending of an M. Night Shyamalan movie and why it didn't quite work for me. Yeah, please. But I guess at least we can ask how the ending worked for you. I, I liked it. You know, it, it's a little bit too neat and tidy and optimistic. And, you know, there's one or two too many rays of sunshine, uh, especially when, like, they're they're trying to set up this this motif of these cosmic coincidences happening and the, you know, the, the folks who came to invade their cabin happened to be listening to the same song as that they were when they were arriving at the cabin, you know, little, little things like that are a little bit too adorable for this kind of movie, <laughs> but it, it kind of calls back to the movie signs by M. Night Shyamalan, where it, it sets up a movie with a very oppressive doomsday scenario and it ends kind of cute and happy, mm -hmm. which, you know, kind of like radical. Um, and I appreciate that. For me, I'm a little bit too cynical to fully love that. 
And I mean, you know, I appreciate it for what it was, but I, I, I did roll my eyes just a bit. Yeah, you can totally do it. There are plenty of movies that can pull that off. Um, yeah, I don't think they quite pulled it off. Like, especially, yeah, the end where they're playing the cute little pop song, they turn it off. And then they turn, or, and then she turns it back off. She turns it off, and the dad turns it on. It's like it's all, it's all gonna be okay. Only two billion of us are dead, including um, your dad, <laughs> who I had to murder, and now you have to let me raise you for the rest of your life. Yeah, but so my main gripe, gripe is even a strong word. It would just be something that would take this from good to great. I guess would be the the way I would phrase it. Um, is that this movie? It never. And I, I'm glad it doesn't. It never explicitly says this is the God of the Old Testament coming to punish us. It's it's Yahweh himself that is about to, you know, cast fire and brimstone about, among Sodom and Gomorrah now because we are fallen as humanity. Um, no one knows why this is happening. Um, even the four people, they just know they have these visions and they, they have somehow understood that this is how they stop it, which I appreciate that. And it keeps it... It keeps the net really wide about why this is happening. And that and like that kind of seems to be floating up in the air and you expect to get something of an explanation at some point in the final reveal. The The issue I have with it is twofold. That one, um, it only, the only interpretation that you ever hear within any of the characters is a pretty strict like Old Testament Christian understanding. I think they even literally say like, the finger of God will scratch the earth with fire, which like, sure. I mean, you, you know, you see... Uh, stuff falling out of the sky and like um, you know you're raised in the US and you see that as like you know God smiting people whatever that's fine um, but all seven characters in this movie are uh, are reason nah, not well to do but they're all Americans like and they all have very American understandings of how uh, of like of myth and and how the end of the world is uh, happening and what what the apocalypse is going to look like so they can only interpret it in ways that uh, make it like an Old Testament God's wrath. I mean, even uh, it's mentioned like, oh, or when after he gets a concussion, he says like, oh, I saw a figure in the uh, in the mirror mm -hmm. when there's a struggle or when they did the first sacrifice scene. And it's pretty clearly implied, at least he believes that's like an angel or God or Jesus or something like that. Um, what I would have wanted to see, especially because this movie is dabbling in a global catastrophe, um, I mean, the, the first plague are the earthquakes that hit the Western U.S. I mean, it hits Canada, too. Uh, but um, the other ones are worldwide. I mean, the airplanes falling out of the sky are across the entire world. That the, the child pandemic, which was a little, that was a little like, okay, we're going to make this as bad as we can. It's a pandemic that only kills cute little kids and maybe puppies, probably. Um, <laughs> Again, and, this is a anti-dead kid and puppy <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Until if we ever do Megan, then I'm going to say that kid deserved to die. Uh, spoils for Megan. Oh, wow. But, <laughs> uh, but anyways, um, it, so it's clearly a global event. It's a hu uh, universal event. But why are there seven Americans all in a cabin that can all hash this out? I'm fine with you know the couple and the kid being, I mean, the kid's Chinese, but it was raised American. So I'm just calling the kid American. Um, that's, I'm fine with that, but like the four people who are picked seemingly at random, uh, well, not so random, you find out later, um, they could have been from anywhere, and they could have had any understanding of what the apocalypse looks like, 
they could have been people who aren't inside monotheistic faiths or grow up in cultures like that, or even cultures that understand uh, the cosmic time as a beginning and an end. It could have been something like, uh, I, I believe it's Aboriginal cultures see time as more of a cycle. Um, so having just something, some other interpretation of what's going on and understanding of what's going on um, would have, could have kicked the doors open a little more, created a little more ambiguity, um, which if you want to talk about lack of ambiguity at the very end, they pretty much, they pretty much look directly at the screen and be like, oh, these people are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They are blah, oh, blah. Yeah. Yeah, they're they literally listening. Yeah. Like, and and it's not to say like I don't I didn't walk out of the movie thinking literally these are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I'm thinking that they're like because uh, this movie is dabbling in metaphor so much. It's like that they may as well be. I don't think they're like the the apocalypse or the horsemen incarnate, but <clears throat> it's only dabbling in Christian imagery of the apocalypse when they really didn't have to set up those walls for themselves. Yeah. Um... It's an interesting point. So do any of the other like major world religions have the same kind of violent uh, kind of scorched earth type of Armageddon? Oh, yeah. That the, that the Christian Bible does. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, if you look at even go back to pagan myths like the Greeks and the Roman gods or gods were chucking lightning bolts and stuff all over the place. Yeah. Lions are chucking virgins into volcanoes to keep their wrath away. There's um, Rag Ragnarok. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not that Christian uh, theology has a, a monopoly on angry, God, angry, bloodthirsty gods. Um, it's more that, I don't know, like, by making them all Americans, it made it so it had to, like, it could only be interpreted as, you know, we're sinners in the hands of an angry god dangling over the fucking, the freaking furnace. In, in Islam... Uh, Jesus comes back and returns to Damascus to slay the Antichrist mm -hmm. and yeah, ushers um, in a period of perfect harmony until Jesus just dies later and then the world ends upon his death. Hmm. Oh, yeah, because Christian, Revel Christian Revelations, Jesus does come back, but uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a little more uh, bombastic. <laughs> right, right. Uh, in Hinduism, Vishnu comes back for like a, la a, a, a final cycle of time, but the world is not destroyed. Or yeah, even in Buddha, like, and then yeah, what if you did a, uh, not even a religion, but just an understanding of the cosmos that doesn't involve a god, a thing with a will that is uh, enacting punishment. Well, you're reward. making, you're making assumptions there, like at no point do, does anybody in this mention no. like a higher power that has been, that is you know, uh, evoked these visions in them. They just have them. Because I was thinking, and this honestly would have been a worse ending. I was thinking this was going to be like the happening. And it was like the grass was telling us, like, I don't know, it's like a, a metaphor for climate change or something like that. And it's like right. nature is so out of whack that like somehow it can get into our brain chemistry and give us apocalyptic visions or something like that. Um, but like even, I wouldn't have wanted it that literal, but like, even even giving it this at least i walked out interpreting it as like there's this force more powerful than us with a will that was enacting upon us that we needed a sacrifice for and that it didn't you could have problematized that interpretation more within the text of the film 
or you could, which would have raised the ambiguity about what's even going on. Because really, there was only two options about what's going on: either uh, you know, big uh, big guy with a beard and a robe is you know uh, about to send us back to the abyss, or these are homophobes that are trying to punish this couple. Like there, there really wasn't any other major option. Right. Right. Well, okay. So let's let's take a step back to kind of your original question. Like, what would like describe for me like the greater impact that this would have if there was more global representation and it wasn't just a uh, you know confined to like an American point of view? Like, what would that change for you? Well, it would have opened up like, and that that's an interesting question that never gets explored. Is that like what what is this force that gave them all visions? What what's its nature? Um, how is it interacting with these people and and how do they understand it? Like, f- you know, these four people, let's, let's just make it as broad and diverse as possible. Maybe they're from four entirely different cultural contexts, entirely different, not even faiths, just understanding of the cosmos and our place in it. Those apocalyptic visions could have been interpreted different than uh, you have to sacrifice people for the end of the world. They all came to the same conclusion, but like, there's no reason to believe that you had to or that they had to come to that conclusion. And even them coming to that conclusion does imply that there, there's some kind of uh, will or intelligent uh, intelligent actor putting upon uh, visions upon these people mind, these people's minds that will re- create this end result. You know, it, it's interesting too, like looking through just films that deal with uh, the apocalypse, uh, a, a lot of early 20th century films like there's there's a danish science fiction film just called the end of the world from 1916 there's a french science fiction film called the end of the world from 1931 and then after that it's just all english language films like very very rare non-english film concerning the end of the world in this sort of context i have one that this would have been an excellent counterbalance to this film. It's Pulse. Mm. Being Pulse. Uh, I have seen Pulse. Yeah. Where that's that's a very different understanding of the end of the world. Where it's definitely, we're not going out with a bang, but a whimper. And it's a more about that. understanding of even what, you know, what supernatural uh, forces are and how they even enact with us actually i wouldn't even consider that movie saying that it's a supernatural ending they you know it it considers the spiritual world an extension of the natural world so give me a character from pulse and put him in put him in knock at the cabin well so that that's a so that's an interesting question like what so how would a character like that interpret the visions differently than the characters that we got and like how would they be kind of arguing in favor of the sacrifice they, they wouldn't see those visions as like this kind of uh, now you have this hero's journey that you have to go on and individually go out and, and conquer this problem. It would be more of like an acceptance of this is, you know, this is how the how nature is going to play itself out. It's been underway. They kind of mention it, too, where it's like these forces have been cooking for way before they were in the cabin, especially the earthquakes like that one's literal where the first earthquake happened before like. I don't know, six or seven hours before the events of the movie. But even the stuff like the plagues or the the the, the TV TVs, airplanes falling, you could understand that as like these are forces that are at this point irreversible. 
and the, our, our ability to have prevented it, it was a result of quote unquote sins from long before the events in that cabin. And what, what started cannot be turned back. But we learned that they can. Yeah, yeah, which is, you know, it makes a happier ending, but like, woo, what a bleak ending. If like, say you got a Pulse character in there and and maybe he's like the dissenting voice among the four of them. And that's why he came because he's like, you know, we really only have three days left on this planet anyways. So like, let's not torture this family and have them kill each other. Let's just, let's just enjoy what we got left. This is all we got guys. Um, and say he, you know, he loses out and the, the, the events of the plot happen anyways. And they discover they're wrong. Like there was no angry God that's punishing us that demanded a sacrifice. It's just, it, it was over long before it began. That's a, that's a bleak ending. <laughs> yeah. That's uh that reminds me of the mist. If you've ever seen the mist, it's got a similarly sort of cynical bait and switch type of ending like that. But let's not spoil a movie that we're not here to discuss. I haven't seen it, but I've heard it's been getting kind of a critical reappraisal of like, guys, this is way better than we remember. Uh, I feel like The Mist was always fairly well received, but it's, I think it got put up on Netflix last year and more people are watching it, remembering how good it is. Maybe that's why. Um, and the ending is is uh, infamous for sure. Okay, so here, here's a question um, because just looking through the history of not counting like, the post-apocalyptic genre, yeah. you know, no Mad Maxes, no, uh, you know, the road year, years past the zombie outbreak. No, just counting that where the movie can like considers like the, the mechanics of the end of the world itself. It's, it, it's a mostly American genre. Like there, there are some exceptions to that. Like certainly like you've got Lars von Trier, a, 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 was he a Danish filmmaker? Is he Dutch? Um, yeah, with, with with melancholia, still an American movie though. Yeah, it's at least a Western phenomenon. It, yeah, an English language phenomenon. And, you know, and it makes sense considering Western religion is the most obsessed with doomsday and bringing judgment upon uh, the masses. It also why, why, why do why do audiences still love them though? Like why so, why was Knock at the Cabin the number one movie this past weekend? So I'm gonna I'm gonna chuck something out here. I haven't I've only thought about this in the time span of you suggesting this. So let's see what happens. These end of the world things center humanity as cosmically incredibly important, right? Like like important enough that the end of us is the end of the world. That's the closing of the universe is humanity is gone, which like in the cosmic scale of things, we know how big the universe is. We're like, we're a blip in the radar. We're really not a big deal. Well, you know who else thinks that they're a big deal? Americans. Like yeah. we are, like we're the yeah. most. This is certainly a manifest <laughs> manifestation of American exceptionalism, right? <laughs> like if the world's going to end, it's going to be our damn fault. Like, yeah. If, uh, like, yeah, it's the idea of like, there can't be a world that exists after the United States. How could that possibly happen? And then even broader, like there can't be a world that exists without like just Western countries in general. How on earth could that happen? Which it, I mean, realistically, the, the dominance of the West is like a fairly new thing. Like we, uh, it hasn't been the dominant culture in the, in the, the span of um, human history for really that long, but First, like we all have it uh, in our bones to think that like the end of the supremacy of the West would naturally mean, or the equivalent of the end of all humanity. 
and hell, we're seeing that right now with like you know the, the all the like cold war tensions and stuff kicking back up about like the West being threatened and like that would mean the end of the world and everything like that. Yeah, if we we let another balloon float over South Dakota, then that's a sign of the sign of the rapture. May as well be. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's not keep beating a dead horse on the uh, the nature of you know Western civilization being so exceptional that the end of the world has only to do with us. <laughs> uh, I don't think there's an end to that. Let's go back to the movie. <laughs> oh, right, the movie. Okay, let, let's talk about the performances specifically. Okay. So obviously this is Dave Batista's lead vehicle. He's been turning in largely impressive performances as side characters, villains, roughnecks, or you know, like team-up movies like Guardians of the Galaxy and The Avengers, obviously, and some smaller movies where he's still not the lead. Uh, to, to my knowledge, this is his first wide release, major motion picture, number one movie in America where he is the lead role and the success of the movie hinges on his performance. My, my, my point of view is that Dave Bautista is the best professional wrestler who's ever tried his hand at, at acting in Hollywood. Like it's a, it's a tradition that goes back, you know, pretty far, right? We've got Andre the Giant and the Princess Bride. Mm. Hulk Hogan really took a stab at like, moving over to being a Hollywood star. Didn't quite work out for him. Roddy, Roddy, Rowdy, Roddy Piper did the same thing. You know, kind of fizzled out after just a couple of roles. You know, obviously pro wrestlers are actors, right? Like mm -hmm. they're actors yeah. and they're athletes and they <laughs> put them together. The Rock is one of our biggest movie stars ever, obviously. Yeah. Not, not a fantastic actor. John Cena has, has really wowed some people with some recent roles, mostly as, you know, a buffoon or, or a comedian. Like the wrestler persona. Yeah, exactly. But Dave Batista has taken remarkable steps to completely shed that persona. Um, he, unlike John Cena, unlike The Rock, he has really distanced himself from the WWE. He doesn't make appearances. He doesn't like participate in their Hall of Fame ceremonies. He doesn't do like guest stars at WrestleMania. He won't go in and just go in and do his finishing move and then leave like, you know, Stone Cold Steve Austin or Hulk Hogan still do, uh, or The Rock still does here and there. Dave Batista has been quite serious about making sure that people see him as a serious dramatic actor. Mm -hmm. And wow, he's good in this movie. Oh man. Well, did um, you, um, and I'm sure it got timed uh, perfectly right before the release of the movie where he did uh, an interview and it got clickbaited to hell. Where he basically said, like, he's done doing Drax and he wants to not only, and in keeping with how you're saying he's trying to distance himself from like the WWE heavy, um, he wants to kind of leave that phase of his career behind and do more uh, meaty roles, which of course, you know, that interview got hacked up and said, like, Dave Batista hates the MCU and wants right. it to go yeah. kick rocks. Yeah, the rage bait portion of that got the clicks, but all he's saying is like, hey, and you know, I, I actually find this really refreshing because you don't often see world famous A-list actors like he really is now say like really like give a heart to heart with the media and their fans like, hey, this is what I want for my career. This is how I mm -hmm. want to be seen as an actor. These are the kind of roles I want. He's out there literally like saying like, hey, hey, Martin Scorsese, I want to be the lead in your next movie. Like, can we talk, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. he's, uh, he's a fan of the craft. He's a student of the craft. He's very good at it. He's got a, like a very gentle charisma kind of 
wrapped in wrapped around like this you know gigantic intimidating body yeah, like, i and, couldn't uh, see anyone else doing this role no he it was made for him it, it was he, he was born to play this role and he he knocks it out of the park with very little effort it seems like you now i'm sure he, he he did his homework and he did a lot of work but you don't see him acting right he's not mm -hmm. making these like he, you know he's not it doesn't seem painful for him it's very right? quiet performance he's dialed in he knows the character he knows where he, what he needs to draw from himself and he just does it and mm -hmm. you know he's been doing that successfully in roles where the main attraction is his size like in Blade Runner, he did Blade it. In, in Dune, he did it. Mm -hmm. He does it as he does it as Drax the Destroyer. Like oddly enough, like Drax is this big, intimidating, violent character with a short fuse. But the thing that makes Drax fun and funny and and likable is his sort of like sensitive, like kind of like oddly nurturing side of him, or like the goofy side. And uh, man, Batista, he he's really great. I, um, I wonder, do you think the script was written for that character to be the lead, or they just realized that Batista is just uh, incredible? Yeah. Because I, I would think back to the novel, I would say Leonard is like sort of the the mushy center as mm -hmm. well. It would have been very easy to center this ensemble around the couple, which I mean, the couple obviously is a huge part of the story. But it's like it's just so clear that uh, Batista is the one who's uh, leading this effort. Yeah, I, I would to me the leads are Leonard and Wen in like the the novel and the screenplay, maybe less so in the screenplay. Yeah, I, I don't think it's like a a change to like the the story's you know fundamental elements that Leonard is like the the lead and kind of the central performance and the central character. No, I mean like he he is he's the interesting one, right? He's the one that's doing this thing. He's the leader. He's doing a thing he doesn't want to do, but that he needs to do. He, it wouldn't work at all if you didn't trust him. And he just, he's, mm, he's yeah. got this, he's got this aura of trust, right? And it would be easy to um, kind of let that fall and let that. Because uh, it could have gone yeah. one of two ways. He could have, oversold that he's a good guy and now you're just on their side the whole time or you could have not trusted him um like if they made uh if they made uh rupert grint's character the lead guy it's like well these guys suck and i don't like them um yeah well let's talk about rupert grint because to, to me that's the revelation as far as the acting in this movie hmm. is like dave batista he's playing into type and he's doing it really well and a lot of people are going to see him for that type that he's always been rupert grint you know, like a lot of people that that were child actors in Harry Potter, like him and Robert Pattinson and and uh, you know, obviously Emma Watson and Daniel, Daniel Radcliffe. Radcliffe yeah. Uh you know, they've they've all taken some steps to distance themselves from their those breakout roles, right? Rupert Grint hasn't had quite as many opportunities to do that compared to like Tom Felton, for instance, um, or, you know, very much definitely not to the level that Robert Pattinson has uh, or Daniel Radcliffe. So like seeing him in this role, I was like shocked at how just how he embodies that malice. Because there were two like, things, too, he had to do where, yeah, he had to have that sense of malice, which like, that's not Ron Weasley. Ron's not malicious. Um, but I also, there was at least an element that I believe that, like, this was a repentant, a repentant man. 
<clears throat> he still has that like just rot inside him. He's still full of hate, but like it's there's there's an element of uh, that he's trying to learn from this or trying or realizes the errors of his ways. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. Like he has that like very very rough sort of malicious exterior. He's got that that deep New England accent that he kind of nails. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he doesn't, <laughs> I kind of forgot that he's English. Um, he, he has very little screen time, but he fills it with such like a, he makes such an imprint. Like he's got that bile, but he also has that repentant soul, like you mentioned. And the, the former wouldn't work without the latter. Yeah. Like if he was just this piece of shit that, uh, you know, has like no, like warm center at all it just wouldn't work and he'd be a plot device well then it was you that you would start believing like oh this is just the homophobic kkk out to get them yeah which you know he kind of is but uh (laughs) but no but but it's it's a lot more than that and uh i think he was the the revelation for me in this Mm. i i I knew batista had this in him like it wasn't Mm. shocking to me at all yeah, Rupert Grant was was remarkable, and actually, also shout out to Kristen uh, Kui, who uh, is the uh, the nine year old girl who plays Wen. Man, she she gives like a really like finely detailed performance, full of lot full of a lot of small but specific actions and like uh, line readings, and just kind of what she does with her face is very very specific. I think that's another hallmark of M. Night Shyamalan. He like he he draws these really adult performances out of his yeah. little actors. I really hope her career goes goes better than uh the fella from the sixth sense. Haley Joel Osment. Yeah. 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 He's got he's had a he's had a rougher go of it um than uh than a lot of folks. But yeah, I really am am was am delighted by by the performance of, of Kristen Kui in this movie. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to see uh, see what she does. But overall, the cast is very good. Like we, mm-hmm. we, we mentioned the, the guy that plays Andrew, like not having quite as much to work with, but he really, he really gives it his all, even though like his character is, is fairly one note. But everyone in this movie has a moment to shine. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's uh, uh, an indicator of, of, M. Night Shyamalan's directing. Well, prowess. also he really he he really directs good performances. And the, yeah, these are this is seven people in an ensemble cast, so you could talk about all seven of these. And we you have a lot of plot to run through. It's only a hundred minutes long. It's very economical. Right? Yeah, yeah. this is tight. Okay, so uh, h- how much does this movie for you? Uh, how far does this go to kind of repair? Uh, M. Night Shyamalan's goodwill. Like, how ex- how much more excited are you for his next movie compared to a week ago? Oh, I think I think he's still case by case for me um, because I was there after the run of um, oh, it just fell right out of my head of Glass. Like after Glass, I'm like, okay, we're or Split. Sorry, sorry. Um, I'm like, okay, okay, we kind of got back on our feet, and then Glass, I went and saw in theaters, and I was like. Bad, um, and then I just I, I saw the conceit of old. I read the reviews, and I just thought, okay, that's another miss. So I guess it's not fair for me to say that he's still pretty inconsistent. Maybe I would like old. Um, I yeah, I think I'm still taking it case by case. Like when when his next movie comes out, it'll probably be one 
where I'll give it a week to see the reviews and then decide. Whereas, like, I'm trying to think of someone who who is, like, a, a little shaky, but I'm still like, oh, they're... Oh, um, oh the guy who made Annihilation, um, Alex Garland. Alex uh, Garland. Yeah. Man was not very good. Uh, but his was next not. movie, I'm going there opening weekend. Uh, Men was not great, but Devs was good. And was Annihilation good. was good. Annihilation is one of my favorites. He he kind of just won me over entirely by having written 28 Days Later. And then Ex Machina? Ex Machina. Very good. Annihilation, very good. Uh, have you seen the movie Sunshine? Yes, that's also good. Yeah, yeah. That's a... Uh, that's, uh, off overlooked one. Really amazing cast in that one. It's got Mary Murphy. Murphy. It's got it's got yeah, it's got Michelle Yeoh, it's got Cliff Curtis, Benedict Wong, uh Captain America, what's his Chris? Chris Evans. <laughs> so this is um, yeah, this is just a Marvel movie that uh, <laughs> oh yeah, it does have does have Wong and Captain America. I mean Michelle Yeoh. And I think I'm pretty sure Cliff that. Curtis has been in the MCU as well. I'm trying to remember where. <laughs> one of the Iron Men, perhaps. Probably. Who hasn't been in the Marvel movie? Um, Not me. I'm still waiting for mine. So you asked a question uh, earlier or alluded to it where you're kind of wondering, like, Shyamalan is one of those, like, auteurs where he has his brand. You kind of, like, you have all these preconceived notions. And is that a good way of marketing a movie? Or is that is that kind of going away? That Like, are those, like, big, heavy-hitting auteurs where... They have a strong point of view. They have a strong style. They have, you know, people have opinions about them. Is that going away or is uh, is that still thriving the way it once was? I mean, I think the, the short answer is obviously we're in the age of IP. Like that's going to lead things now. And But there are still like, there are still directors that, um, that when the, the title sequence comes up for a preview, it says an M. Night Chambalan film. A, Quint, a film by Quentin Tarantino, a film by Martin Scorsese. But yeah, Christopher I, Nolan's still getting like $200 million budgets in a mid-July release just based on the strength of his name. Yeah, strength of his name, even after Tenet essentially flopped, didn't it? Um, uh, did it? I don't but, know. I didn't, I didn't care much for Tenet, but did it flop? Let's, let's find out. Continue. I, as you're looking it up, like even these names we're bandying out, these are all people that cut their teeth in like the 90s. And in the era before, we're now in I, like uh, we're uh, marketing or marketing for films is being driven by IP. Like, can you think of a director that uh, rose to prominence after the year 2010, oh five even, where they have a like a full on brand and people are, are excited for their movies? It gets marketed as their movies. Yeah, Jordan Peele. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah it's, is, it's like like people Art. literally just say his name and you know all about the kind of movies that he makes. Um, among exhausting people that wear beanies and mustaches, you got Ari Aster. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, he's, so he's, he's had two films out in wide release. Mm, I, I don't, I don't think his name carries nearly the kind of weight that Jordan Peele's does. No, like, no I, not. but not even close. close. I'm thinking about them and, uh, uh, there's the author and there's the director, and I will always get them mixed. There's Dave Ebert, Eggers and there's Robert Eggers, and I'm very mad that they they have the same name. Um, yeah, Robert Eggers is another one where like, you know, film bros like us know Robert yeah. Eggers, right? Yeah, well, like, what's your what? Yeah, what's your uh, your dorky coworker that uh, rarely watches anything outside of the the tr- top trending page on Netflix um, would want to go see? 
Yeah. But but even those types of folks, they know they know Jordan Peele. Like they have an yeah. image of what his movies are like. I'm sure someone is probably screaming from their their iPod or iPhone. It's 2023, um, and yelling names at us right now. You don't listen to podcasts on your iPod because I, <laughs> I I will. Uh, I download them from I, my iTunes. Well, I will. I will. I will like log into my desktop PC. <laughs> uh, I will open up Internet Explorer. <laughs> I'll go to my favorite podcast website. I will download episodes onto my iPod Nano. Ooh. And I will take that with me uh, to the gym and I'll listen to a podcast. Oh, see, I, I was a little swankier in my uh, 2003 uh, Mac where, you know, I had like the 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 translucent back um, and I had iTunes. So you could download it straight from iTunes, put it on my iPod video. I had space for days. I still remember my uh, when I got an iPod video for my 13th birthday. I immediately downloaded Pirates of the Caribbean 2, and I watched that on my three-inch screen on my iPod. Wow. I thought it was mm, beautiful. I cannot watch movies on a small screen. TV show, <laughs> fine by me. But, um, no, I can't do it, man. Uh, <laughs> Gore, God, Gore Verbinski would be absolutely appalled by that. I um, yeah, it's like because I'm fl- I'm at my parents right now, and I'll be flying back. And my selection of airplane movies, I'm always really careful because I'm like, this has to be a movie that I don't care to actually appreciate it. Gotcha. Which, uh, so so Tenet, so <laughs> Tenet, uh, production budget of uh, 250 million dollars, uh, made 365 million, so it probably didn't break even. It also came out in the summer of 2020. Yeah. So, you know, I, it, in my eyes, like 365 million in the heat of COVID where no one was going to the movie theater. That's a that's, that's a big, that's a major success. Yeah. Like if that movie had come out this past summer, it would have made double that at oh, least. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. No one insisted that it had to come out summer of 2020. Yeah. But, but you know, Christopher Nolan is still one of those names where it's like, yeah. You go to the movie and it's like, here's the new film by Christopher Nolan. Here's a really crazy trailer that's coming out a year before the movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't see that stopping. We'll see how how Oppenheimer does, but I think uh, the the industry at large would would have to, you know, continue well, dying for a while all, before before that happens. We all understand Nolan and his hubris is trying to release his little Oppenheimer movie at the same time as Barbie. You know, I'm yeah, seeing Barbie I, first. You know, I think that there's probably a lot more uh, crossover appeal between those two movies than uh, the distributors imagine there to be. <laughs> I love it. Uh, yes. You know, Greta, Greta Gerwig might be one of those directors where well, it's like, you'll just see it because it's a Greta Gerwig movie. Like, I remember like thinking, like, like first finding out about the Barbie movie. And I did, I'm just putting myself in this position where it's like, what if I learned that there was a Barbie movie, but I did have no idea who was directing it. There is no way I would no. ever consider going to see it. But the Greta but Gerwig Barbie movie. Greta Gerwig's Barbie, I'm like legit hyped for. Um, I do people does your your lame coworker that only watches Netflix top movies know who Wes Anderson is? That's a good question. I mean, he's he's so popular, but I mean, it, well, I mean, he's popular amongst you know Kids lovers of the cinema. Movie. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like it's not like his movies make money at the box office. No. But um, his movies are also just very, you know, mo- more modestly budgeted. Um, oh, you know what the other answer is? Zack Snyder. But he did, you know, he did all the DC movies. Yeah, especially because the after post Snyder cut, now, <laughs> now, yeah, people will like ha- he has a brand. Yeah, and people will go see a, a movie because it's a Zack Snyder movie, certainly. But yeah, I can't think of like any. I think any Jordan movie. Peele. I think Jordan Peele is the best example of the last like five to ten years. Yeah, but I can't. Um, I can't think of another one. Which uh, I'll let people from the future. Uh, at us about that right um <laughs> well so uh based on knock at the cabin what what other movies would you recommend for enjoyers of knock at the cabin so a general uh i come preloaded with my recommendations and i tried to <clears throat> i tried to pick two for two different uh in two different categories one is one that came out in my lifetime so something a little more contemporary and the one that came out further back um so something just a little more older, a little uh, maybe some that you might have missed. Um, now, actually, I was gonna say the movie that you hated, apparently, in in the Earth. But now I want to switch my answer to Pulse. Because oh, it, don't don't let me stop you from recommending In the Earth. Well, I will. I will say if you watch In the Earth, don't blame me. <laughs> but but you think, go right ahead. I think Pulse works as a better uh, companion piece to this. Um, because it is an alternate look of what the end of the world could be and how people do and don't do things in response to it. Uh, also, it's just really, it's really creepy. And it's probably, I've, I would uh, love to hear uh, pushback on this, but this could be the first, one of the first movies that really nail the internet or what it feels like to be on the internet. Because this movie is from the late 90s, I want to say 98 or 99. Um, and uh, I think it's from the early aughts, but but oh, is it? very early aughts, yeah. Um, but like the internet hadn't really taken off as this major cultural driver that we know today. And yeah. wow, does it nail how it feels to be terminally online? Yeah. Um. So, totally, totally agree that it it does that. Um, a movie that we've discussed, uh, mm. not ad nauseum, but kind of close to it, predates that by four years. Also, a Japanese movie. Perfect Blue absolutely like <laughs> predicts the future of how the internet would be misused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, certainly there's there was things happening in the mid ninety mid to late nineties, uh, but Perfect Blue has the kind of internet usage that we're only now fully understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, but without getting too far off the rails from uh recommendations based on knock at the knock at the cabin pulse would be your first uh my, you know i'm gonna go like very literal like i usually do on these and uh signs oh, it's yeah, another yeah. movie that is concerned with an apocalyptic scenario uh that takes almost place in almost entirely just with this one family in a you know a centralized location deals with faith and family and love uh, in a way that's probably even more on the nose than Knock at the Cabin. Um, but Signs is one of the, the scariest movies, in my opinion. That's going to be subjective. The fear of the unknown, of like what could be up there, to me is something that is profoundly disturbing. And the movie ratchets up the tension with that unknown uh, remarkably well. But it, it deals with a lot of the same 
topics in even like even a similar context or in in a similar style and uh it's uh it's it's better than knock at the cabin but very similar now is it scarier than having to watch corners in canadian suburban homes yeah uh scarier than skin or rink i don't know <laughs> i don't know man skin skin or rink Scared, scared the daylights out of me as a 35 year old <laughs> signs as a 15 year old i you know i don't know i don't know how i would have felt about skin Rink 20 years ago Ew. Uh, 20 oh, 20 years ago uh signs absolutely just like had its way with my psyche man <laughs> like i uh this is true i was i was 15 when that movie came out and i slept I slept in my mom's bed for like three days in a row after seeing signs. Oh, poor soul. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I um, laughed. there's a reason why I didn't watch scary movies until I was like 25. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, when I was 15, I was even very conditioned to them by then. Like at that point I was an old hand. Like I watched <laughs> a lot of the greats when I was like five, six, seven years old. I saw the movie scream in the movie theater, like around Child Christmas abuse. time when I was like nine yeah, my, my parents are old, or they were. They're they're neither of them are alive, but when they were, they were old. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, um, yeah, like I had a lot of older cousins, like cousins that were old enough to be like you know my uh, mm, like yeah. my teenage teenage parents. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time, you know, when I was five with my like early twenties cousins who thought it would be hilarious to like show me The Exorcist. And uh, it was hilarious, and they scared the daylights out of me. But it's it sparked a lifelong love of being scared. And Signs Signs was uh, a rare movie to do that to me. You know, mm. as late as my teenage years, in my in my college age years, Paranormal Activity was another one. When it first came out, I got really caught up in the hype, and it worked on me really well. Uh, but then Skinnamarink. But yeah, si Signs is a scary movie. Like yeah. even now, I still do. I gotta, I gotta check it out. Uh, you haven't seen Signs? Might well, say October viewing. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll do an episode on Signs. Mm. It's one of my all-time favorites. If you don't like it, we'll have a great episode. It, um, I'm, I'm predicting that, like, it's... You, and I'm sure you've had this experience, too. Like, as horror ages, the visceral shock is a little tougher. Yeah, well, it's also it's also difficult to compare watching signs right now, like from like with an analytical adult perspective, like yeah. on your TV, compared to like seeing it in a group of scared people in a packed movie theater when you're when you're a teenager. Like, there's just no. It's, it's going to be a different movie for you than it was for I'm, me. When I'm a big strong boy and I come out of it without nightmares and having to sleep with my mom, like I'm sorry, well, that I get the bravest boy badge and well, you don't. Get, Given that, that your mom is in the same house as you right now, you should watch it right now and find out for sure. <laughs> I should do that, yeah, just in case. Watch I need it tonight, to see what happens. <laughs> um, oh, but for my, my second uh, uh, recommendation for an older movie, it's called, uh, I think it's Ordet. I don't know, I don't speak Danish, so it's O-R-D-E-T. I think it's Ordet. Um, but it deal dabbles in similar things themes as knock at the cabin um there's a couple of similar plot points like a lot of it happens in houses and people talking and people kind of being representatives of ideas um it's an, it's a, a very thorough explanation or exploration of like face ba faith-based reasoning 
uh, empirical or rationality or rational faith reasoning and how the two can combat against each other or the two where they don't need to combat against each other. Um, and also, I mean, Dreyer's just, he's one of the greats for a reason. Um, sure. And wow, it, it you go into it not thinking it's going to have this like, creepy is the wrong word. I don't even, I don't even like, know. Ear, like gripping in an eerie way. Yeah, eerie, eerie might be the best word, or haunting almost. With a, um, where by the end, yeah, it, it kind of sticks to your bones for a little while. Where yeah, so, Evan will not stick, quite stick to my bones the same. I, I, I mean, I'm still thinking about it right now. <laughs> I saw a couple days ago. Um, tell, tell me more about about the, um, I guess the shared DNA between uh, or or debt and knock at the cabin. So. It, the shared DNA comes more on the thematics where, yeah, you, you have a, uh, two characters that um, I think kind of represent these archetypes that you see in Knock at the Cabin, where one is someone who has lost their faith. So they are, they're more in the, in the rational camp, but they, they have this kind of, um, oh, is it Sartre that said this? Oh, we're going to, Hey everyone, I have a humanities degree, so I know Sartre. Um, wow. That it's like, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. It's that kind of feeling. Um, yeah. And then you have this other character that the whole, or it, it's the movie is presenting it essentially that he is delusional the whole time. And he literally believes that he is the manifest or the reincarnation of Christ come back, come uh, back to Denmark to save the world. Um, have I told you my favorite start joke? No. All right. So um, Jean, Jean Paul Sartre walks into a, a cafe, French cafe, obviously. Naturally. And, he orders a coffee with no milk. Oh. The waitress says, sorry, Monsieur Sartre, we don't have any milk. Can I get you a coffee with no cream? Dumb. Very dumb. It's just as dumb as the quote that you just said. <laughs> it's just as dumb as I don't believe in God and I miss him. I... I love um, I love putting my degree to good use by laughing at stupid Sart jokes. Um, Dick and Sart jokes. <laughs> That's going to be the name of our our, our compilation. Uh, when we they put all of our reviews into a book, it's going to be called Dick and Sart jokes. Dicks and Sarts, you know, just dicking and sarting around. Yep. Oh, that was dumb. I apologize. Um, anyway, I'm sorry I derailed Ordet, oh. but I think the ship sailed. <laughs> but uh, Ordet does similarly to, um, well, actually, it does something superficially similar to Knock at the Cabin, where it does answer the questions of who's right and who's wrong in the story. Uh, but I think because Dreyer is so, you know, once again, he's one of the best for a reason. Um, even though you are literally looking at what could, should superficially be the answer, it still feels very uncertain. And it's almost um, almost akin to like Tarkovsky, the way that spirituality is is portrayed on screen. And even though it's like explicitly you're seeing supernatural things happen, like it's not it's not pushing you. You still have to take it on faith that what's happening is supernatural. I see. I see. Got it. So we're dead. Um, Pretty good. Um, yeah. Uh, my, my, my last one will be um, yeah, a, little, a little bit uh, probably more accessible. Um, so that would be 1968's Night of the Living Dead by George Ooh. A. Romero. 
also concerns the end of the world, also concerns a small group of people confined to a small space, also concerns those people having dramatically different points of view of the kind of severity of the situation or the the actuality of the situation. And uh, you similarly, you uh, it takes the end of the world and a kind of an impossible to fully imagine scenario and uh, creates this kind of microcosm of yeah. of belief or lack of belief. There's also a lot of really potent imagery and and themes around race in America and, and the civil civil rights for for African Americans. Um, and it was a revolutionary movie in that regard. I think there's clear shared DNA between Signs and Knock at the Cabin and uh, The Night of the Living Dead. Um, and uh, yeah, I, th I think if you enjoyed the tension between, you know, the, the characters on the inside kind of debating, you know, what is or isn't happening on the outside, either uh, accepting their folly or at least being punished by it. Uh, Night of the Living Dead is obviously a classic and spawned a, an entire genre that is going strong today. Um, but I, I think that M. Night Shyamalan probably um, probably has uh, holds that movie uh, in, in high esteem. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't think about that one. That's, a, that's an interesting way to loop that one in. Yeah, I've always, I've always, so I've always thought of Signs as, as being very similar to, to, to Night of the Living Dead. You'll see why when you watch it. Um, but I think Knock of the Cabin even more so. Well, that does it for this week. Again, this is Concessions. I'm Jared. I am Dan. And remember, we are an anti-child and puppy death podcast. Most of the time. Most of the time. See you later. <laughs>